It's Friday, which means here at On Point, it's Jackpot Day. That's the new unofficial name for our weekly podcast special with Jack Beattie, On Point News Analyst. Now, usually we ask Jack to give us his analysis of something in the news that's not getting enough attention or enough insight. But this week, there really is only one thing to talk about. Uh, and oh, by the way, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, but you're not here to hear me. You're here to listen to Jack. So, Jack, when Kevin McCarthy was voted out as House Speaker on Wednesday, something until that day had never happened in all of U.S. history. You remember, Jack, I emailed you immediately and, and wrote my message that this all seems so bizarre right now. I need to hear your analysis on this more than anything. So, Jack, thank you very much for obliging me. Well, I was uh, I was flattered to be invited. <laughs> You're the main guest, not just an invitee. But, Jack, so tell me, what do we need to know in order to really understand what happened on Wednesday? Well, Magda, I want to focus first on something Congressman Tim Burchett said. Uh, and here it is. I represent my district, and I'm voting the way my district would like me to do. You're also um, part of the body. I'm also part of the body, but... When it's all over with, Lyndon Johnson said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. I have three of them. They're all at home. Okay, so other than his uh, very witty quip there following LBJ, I should also note that uh, that was from CNN. What was it about what Burchett said, uh, Jack? He's a Republican from Tennessee's 2nd District that really caught your attention. Well, he was one of the eight, of course, the eight Republicans who defenestrated uh, Kevin McCarthy. And uh, uh, he said he voted his district. Well, that made me curious about his district and indeed about the districts of his seven uh, rebel colleagues. And I, and I looked into demographic data about the districts, and they're more or less what you'd expect, rural, exurban, touches here and there of small cities, the basic Republican political geography. What is distinctive about them and which what I think they share with the 90 odd Republicans who voted to uh, shut down the government over the weekend and the 70 odd who voted, you know, to default on the debt and the 140 some who essentially voted to throw away the election in early 2021. What what these districts have in common is their pr- proportion of people, in, the percentage of people in them who, who are foreign-born, the average is 5% over the eight districts. The American national average is nearly 14%. Jack, so let me just jump in ex- here because sure. I want to be sure that I heard you clearly. So in Burchett's district, Tennessee's second, plus the other seven that you said who voted to give McCarthy the boot, that the average percentage of foreign-born Americans is smaller than that nationwide, right? Is that what you said, that in Burchett's it's 5%, which is significantly less than the rest of the country? Yes, it is. And in fact, over the eight, it's 5%. It averages 5%. And the national average is about nearly 14%. So this is a dramatic difference from, say, what you would a, a congressperson from, say, uh, Rochester, New York might see, or certainly anyone from a congressperson from any uh, uh, nor- uh, city. Uh, <clears throat> and why does that and, matter? And, yeah. Well, you know, what it matters is the the people in these districts 
don't share the sort of visual pluralism that people in more diverse parts of the country share, where you see people who don't look like you, who maybe don't come from the same, uh, even weren't even born here, but who are Americans too. And the sort of auditory pluralism one hears, different accents, different, they're, they're, they're kept apart from all that. And these people, um, the, the idea of newcomers is to them, is to, is to these rural voters, threatening. They are a vague menace rather than a daily, uh, uh, you know, encounter uh, with, with otherness. It, it, it's not there. And it produces, uh, well, after all, what were the issues here? Contain the border, shut down that border. And by gosh, there is a real crisis there. And uh, uh, stop spending so much money. Well, you know, uh, who, who can believe that, uh, you know, who, no one wants the government to spend too much money. But the idea that, uh, that government is spending money and it isn't benefiting me is, mm. is an idea that is so rife in, in, uh, in, in, in rural America, in Trump America, in Jackie, populist America. Yeah, can I just jump in here? Yes. Because looking at actually who makes up the district, as you've done, in order to understand the votes from these members of the House is really interesting. And I've dug up some other numbers, which I'm sure you've seen, but I just want to share them with with your listeners. So um, as you said, there's a very low rate of uh, foreign-born Americans in the district. I'm seeing here in Tennessee's second, the 2020 median household income for example, was $57,000. And when you compare that to the United States, I think the U.S. national median household income was higher, $74,000 in 2022. Um, so a difference there. And then, I mean, maybe it's just obvious, but I should say it anyway, that uh, it is, the district is um, 86% White, eighty-six percent white, six mm. percent black, three percent Hispanic. So, one point five percent Asian. So, um, maybe perhaps on average a slightly uh, less wealthy, but way more white district. That's a fair fair description, right? Fair description and fair description of the others, more or less. Uh, the, the Arizona districts, for example, there uh, have have more Hispanics. The South Carolina district represented by Nancy Mace, uh, that has more African-Americans. Okay. So then go on, because I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I wanted to, uh, you were describing, you know, why this, why this matters and the fact that it connects back to what you were talking about last week with the line. Yes. You know, and, and Bob Good, who was, represents the Virginia district in here, rural Virginia district, he said, most of what Congress does is not good for the American people. And Tim Burchett says, uh, people back home are telling me we can't keep going on like this, meaning spending money. And this does relate to that resonant uh, image of Arlie Russell Hochschild's, uh from her book, and the book is itself a resonant title, Strangers in Their Own Land, which represents her portrait of uh, white working class rural voters in Louisiana, just at the, at the, at the, at the moment of Trump's entry into politics. And, and what she described is a feeling that government, 
These people felt abandoned by government, that they were in a line waiting to get to the American dream and the line wasn't moving and people were cutting in ahead of them. And those people, why they were black and they were Hispanic and they were professional women. But what about me? When do I get there? And they weren't getting there. And they had developed a kind of culture of blame displacement. Mm. It's somebody, you know, it's those people out there who are the problem. And, and, in, and to these people, in effect, shutting down the government is, well, yes, it should be shut down. It's not serving me. So I think what we're seeing, what these, the congressman from Tennessee was accurate. He, he was representing the grievances, if you will, the political unconscious of his district. And that is the, the you know, the heartland of Trumpian resentment. Yeah. Well, so, Jack, this is so interesting because um, it makes a lot of sense when you put it that way, that Congressman Burchett is, you know, authentically voting the the beliefs and uh, feelings of of members of, of his district who, you know, who don't think that government has been working for them. So big deal. Shut it down or punish the speaker, the now the former speaker of the House who, uh, you know, had the the gall to work with Democrats to keep the government open for another 45 days. I can see the logic of that, except, I mean, Jack, as you know, there's all of this evidence, A, that um, in terms of federal dollars, more federal dollars tend to flow into red states than blue states. That's one area of... uh, uh, of the discrepancy between reality and what people feel in some of these districts. And second of all, um, you know, I can't help but to think that, yes, there has been maybe economic stagnation in some of these places and joblessness when industry moves out. But how much of this government doesn't work for me sense is coming from what people are told, right? Told on Fox News, told by the, you know, every member of the Republican Party, practically. Uh, You know, they're told to believe this, even if sometimes it may not actually fully match their reality. Do you see what I'm, I I think that's important because for as long as people are told this, they're not going to worry about the consequences of shutting down the government for everybody. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The data says one thing, the people say another. But what are they reflecting, after Mm. all? What part of government do they touch daily? Well, if you get Social Security or Medicare, I guess you touch the federal government. But we saw in the Tea Party movement, the people saying, keep your hands off my Medicare. Right. (laughs) They they had a sense that Medicare was their private insurance policy. Keep your government hands Uh, off my Medicare. Keep your government hands. Yes, thank you. And then look at their, their plight. Just this week, a couple of economists in the New York Times shared some data that they had done that high school graduates in America live eight and a half years less than college graduates. Wait a minute. Uh, in other words, they have they have fewer life chances along the way because you're, if you live in a rural area, you, there isn't as much opportunity. And they don't live as long. They live worse and they live shorter. Uh, eight and a half years, that makes people awfully angry. And I think that fact, just that, just that business about mortality and all it says about the built-in uh, you know, hazards that people have to run in their everyday lives, especially people that do manual labor, this makes people mighty resentful. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to that thought in just a second. But 
Jack, do you hazard uh, an opinion on uh, all the uh, the names that have been floated for who might be the next Speaker of the House? I mean, the one that I think, you got to be kidding me, is uh, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, well, she wants Donald Trump to be the next Speaker. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the best comments in the week uh, of the week was um, from uh, <clears throat> Charlie Sykes in The Bulwark. He quotes uh, a passage from A Man for All Seasons in which Sir Thomas More says to this young man, Richie Rich, who's very ambitious to go on and scheming. He says, why, Richard, it profits a man to give up his soul for the whole world, but for whales? Kevin McCarthy gave up his soul, not for Wales, but for Donald Trump. And in effect, Trump was the speaker and will be the speaker. And Trump is, the chaos is his brand. Dysfunction is his, is his uh, you know, excuse to ele elect me and there'll be order. I'll, we'll shoot the shoplifters and we'll bring order to Congress. This is setting up the, you know, the, 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 the chaos caucus is setting up the government doesn't work. Someone, the, a strong man needs to take control. And he's not on a white horse, God knows, but he's waiting. Yeah. You know, so this takes us back to what you're saying about people aren't going to take it anymore. And to be frank, much of the greatest change in American history, both negative and positive, Right, have come from moments where people say, I am mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So I get the potency of that. But, you know, when you're in a burn it all down mood, at least, you know, have people in place who have a plan on what to rebuild. And I, mm -hmm. that's what I'm not seeing. I'm, I'm understanding the heat of the anger of burn it all down. But, you know, the Chaos Caucus, as you called them, they didn't even have a plan of who's going to be the next speaker when they cast their votes on Wednesday. So, I mean, is there it's not just minority rule that we're facing now. It's a minority of a minority in the Chaos Caucus, Jack. Oh, it absolutely is. And there is no plan. It is chaos for its own sake. Although I do think it has this sort of fuse leading to Trump and saying, we've got to have order. Uh, no, you know, Lincoln was so good on this. He warned, he said, when once you abandon the majority principle, you wind up with anarchy or despotism. Well, we saw anarchy on the floor of the House where eight people, what, a fraction of the House uh, caucus could could throw out the speaker, working their minority rule against will against pretty much everybody else on the Republican side, uh, and of course that was the anarchy. And Trump is really promising to bring the despotism in uh, 2024 when uh, when you know essentially democracy will be on the ballot. And the majority principle will be severely tested. Mm. Okay, folks. Well, as you know, Jack always gives us collectively something to think about. So this week, what I'd love to hear from you is, first of all, what do you think about Jack's analysis about the authenticity of the vote of the specifically the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy and the, how they're reflecting the needs, uh, desires, and wishes of people in their district, especially if you live in one of those districts. I'd love to hear from you. And then just kind of in general, we just need to know what your thoughts are on uh, the chaos in the House of Representatives this week and whether it's uh, further, 
I don't know, um, rattled your faith in this country's ability to govern itself. So grab your phone, and if you don't already have it, get the On Point Vox Pop app. You can just go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop, okay? And let us know what you think about Jack's uh, insights and analysis regarding the defenestration, perfect word, Jack, the defenestration of now former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, And Jack, as you know, I want to assure listeners that we actually listen to everything that comes in (laughs) to this program, Mm -hmm. all listener feedback, Mm -hmm. because we have a lot of listener thoughts in response to your podcast from last week when you talked in depth about the line. So, Jack, we are going to get to those in just a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. Okay, we're back. And Jack, oh, I can't say this enough. You really do keep touching a nerve with listeners in these Friday jackpods. So last week, you talked about the line, okay? And you described that as, what, the feeling that many working-class white Americans have about government not necessarily working for them, but working for uh, black and brown Americans more often or, or better. So I have to say, lots of people shared their thoughts about this, Jack, and I've got some uh, listener feedback in a couple of groups here. So here's the first one. Several listeners, they just balked at some of the presumptions that they think are going into believing that there's any kind of line in the first place, a line for, you know, government assistance in one's life. So this is Howard Turner. He's from Elkhart, Indiana. He says he's a 59-year-old white male from a working-class family, and he told us he's always been a poor working-class American until recently when he found a job with a living wage. I am greatly offended by the idea of the line that just because I'm a white man... I'm supposed to get in, be in this line, and eventually I will become middle class. That's not the way it works. And for people to think that that's how it's supposed to work just shows another example of why America is a racist country. It doesn't matter what color skin you are, what gender you are. No one is going to just become middle class. You have to work at getting yourself better than where you started out as. So really interesting from Howard there saying Americans don't have a birthright to be in the middle class. Fascinating. Okay, well, in a similar vein, Jack, this is Anna Rasmussen. She told us she's a 64-year-old white woman in Santa Cruz, California, and her parents were born into poverty during the Great Depression. And she said they worked very, very hard to give their children a better life, which she's grateful for. But then she told us 
she wonders about the assumption that goes into the idea of a line, the assumptions that Americans believe each generation is supposed to be wealthier than the one before. I deeply believe that the goal or expectation for each succeeding generation to be better off than the previous one is a blight and a peril on our entire country. Why do we need our standard of living to be better? Why have more rather than enough? The U.S. is the wealthiest country in the world. Per capita, we already live in extravagance and excess compared to the vast majority of people on the planet. How much more do Americans believe is our right? Oh, Jack, you have some thoughts about that? Mm. Mm. That is, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a profound critique of the idea. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> more has been the American dream, for better or worse. And 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 our, our this woman really makes the case that it's been for worse environmentally, but that's what it means to be an American. You know, George Santayana said the only indigenous American faith is belief in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you can't just turn that off and say we ought to get used to John Stuart Mill's steady state where nothing is going to move very fast and we're all going to stay in place. That's not. American individualism, unfortunately, that's against the national grain. And, you know, you you can't think America out of the Americans. I completely agree. Jack, you actually took the words right out of my mouth about both of these are sort of critiques of the fundamentals of the American dream. And I do actually think it's a birthright, if they choose to have it, of Americans to hope that something better may be possible. Now, what that better is, is up to us as individuals. But, you know, also, Anna pointed out something that is factually true about per capita, the United, each American per capita has greater wealth than almost every other country in the world. But the problem is that per capita measure, right? Because it's an average and there's nothing average about how the wealth is actually distributed in this country. So that is the, uh, the other set of um, feedback that we got from listeners. So I want to share this with you. This is Kale Lively. He says he's a middle-income white office worker in Spokane, Washington, and that, yeah, he does understand why some people might see narrowing opportunities for working-class white Americans and increasing opportunities for others. So as a white male, it seems like that we have less people working our line. And as less people have working our line, we look over to our left and our rights, and we see these lines that are shorter, that are taking populations that are potentially smaller, and they seem and appear to be moving faster. Okay, but here's where it gets interesting, Jack, because Kale also told us that the number of lines doesn't really matter. People are not cutting in line in front of white working-class Americans. And he also said there's nothing wrong with government wanting to assist disadvantaged Americans of all races. And then Kale really wanted to drive this point home. He said, if we focus on that, we're missing the point. The issue is, is that capital over the last 30 years has siphoned off the wealth of the middle and working class to their own advancement. And they don't wait in the line. They have a VIP service and another building. And rather than expanding our line, they keep building up their VIP service and letting more and more of them gain advantage and accumulate more wealth and not pay for the society that allowed them to gain that wealth. And then we all praise them like gods. Okay. Here's the last one, Jack. This is from James Rosatskowitz from Winthrop, Massachusetts. And he was kind of 
done with our line metaphor, <laughs> to be perfectly frank, Jack. And he just sent us a message that cut to the chase. What I need to hear from the presidential candidates is how they are going to restructure the tax laws to tax the 1% and eliminate corporate subsidies for the military-industrial complex, data mining, and surveillance corporations. Okay, Jack, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, as to James, uh, who, who, you know, one, one, one wishes the same thing. I mean, what did Jimmy Carter say a couple of generations ago? The tax code is a disgrace to the human race, and it's become only more disgraceful. And, and uh, yes, the, the 1% and, indeed, the top 20% have just steadily things have gotten lower and lower for them on their taxes. I remember 20 years ago, even Larry Summers saying that if taxes were kept just as they were under Carter— uh, to about the year, this was 2005 or so, uh, every American would have an extra $12,000 a year, but the richest 1% would each of them have a million dollars less. Mm. <laughs> I think we'd be better off. I, I could use eleven grand a year. Uh, so, yes, let's do something with the tax. And, of course, the, the further idea is what about a wealth tax? Is there any way that the real as it were, you know, ground of American inequality, wealth, is there some way that can be taxed? Right. You know, I, but, I, oh, go ahead, Jack. Yeah, excuse no, me. No, please, no, please, go ahead. No, I was just, I was, I was just going to get on with, uh, with Kale, but I, he, he, I think he, he, he really puts his finger on it. Uh, you know, uh, there is a line or there are many lines, but, but, you know, but but some people are born uh, on you know ahead of others in the line, and they have advantages that are built in, and those advantages just accrue to them. And the government, rather than trying to, you know, measure even things out a little, give all a chance, uh, uh, s- stays back in the main. And God knows they're not doing much for minorities when you just look at the facts. Yeah. But who is be- but but the wealthy are benefiting, the connected are benefiting, and the money that 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 eleven grand a year that we all could have that's not going to us. That is going to capital, and uh, uh, that produces tremendous resentment and blame displacement. Who's 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 responsible for this? They don't look at the capitalists. It's uh, you know that that black guy over there, or that mm. that woman, or whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, Kale. Um, the thing that really caught my attention with what he said is he pointed out the the other side of the double the two double edged sword of the American dream, right? Because when he he said the Americans see the wealthy, they see them getting wealthier, right, and Instead of focusing on how that funneling upward of wealth is reducing opportunity for others, as Kale said, we treat them like gods, right? Because oh, because there's something about the American dream, though I'm very passionate about it and believe in it, also still foist the responsibility on the individual, right? And so it's like you can make it in the United States. Well, yes, while that is true, it doesn't also allow room for a philosophical or emotional acknowledgement that government, too, plays a role in helping you make it as an individual. And I think Kale really, like you said, he hit the nail on the head with that one. But, Jack, this is why I love our listeners, and they're responding so powerfully to what yes. you have to say in the podcast. So why don't you give us a little tease for what's going to come next week? 
well, we're going to talk about uh, Trump's plans if, um, <clears throat> well, if he becomes president. And really what he plans to introduce is an American cacistocracy, government by the worst. And uh, the, the, the plans are unbelievable in terms of purging people out of the civil service and making uh, you know, people take loyalty oaths, not to the Constitution, but to Trump. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a scary prospect. And, uh, you know, just think of Rudy Giuliani as the attorney general and you get a taste of what a cacistocracy would look like. Yeah, well, for keen listeners out there, there. They will notice that that was what we were supposed to have done this week. But Kevin McCarthy's uh, defenestration <laughs> pushed that back for another week. One day in the future, Jack, we're going to have like a special podcast episode of Jack's vocab, right? Because just today we had defenestration <laughs> and cacistocracy. So I'm going to keep track of all of it. But, but for now, Jack, thank you so much as always. Thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is the Jackpod version of On Point. 